Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you need to know how to work plywood with your hand tools? Have you wondered about the usefulness of combination planes? Are you feeling guilty about using screws in your woodworking projects? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 19 of the show for February 7th, 2018. Before I start today's show, just want to take a minute to thank all of the folks who support the show over on Patreon, including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Krister K, Lawrence Polinski, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delorier, Jens Rosendahl, Matt McGrain, Jared Tolan, Chris Barnes, Christopher Bush, Lance Stutchel, John Schuster, and thanks to three new patrons this week, Steve Dannenman, Kyle Groff, and Cupressa Serratina. Thank you, everyone, for your generous support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. The uh, most recent Patron Extra show was posted on January 31st and was actually a video extra show on tips for grinding and honing in-candle gouges. So head on over there and, and check that out if you are a patron and have not done so already. So not a whole lot going on in the shop this week. Uh, I did start working on a new project, but I don't want to say too much about it just yet because it, it might end up as a, a magazine article. So I don't have the details of that totally worked out yet, so I'm not going to say much more than that at this point. Um, of course, have been continuing to work on the cabin, and uh, recently my wife and I finished the building the lower flight of stairs to get us from the first floor to the second floor. So hopefully pretty soon for the... Uh, First time in, in about two years, we won't have to use ladders to get up to the second floor. So uh, that that lower flight has been built and installed and uh, starting to work on the upper flight of stairs now. Uh, and I have been posting uh, cabin progress pictures and uh, on Instagram. So if, you, if you're interested in uh, following along with the progress of the cabin build, I know it's not really related to uh, to the blog or the podcast, but uh, you know it is what I'm spending most of my time on right now. So uh, if it is something you're interested in, in following along with the progress on, uh, head on over to Instagram. Just give me a follow on Instagram. And I've been posting all of uh, the, the log cabin progress pictures over there on uh, on my Instagram account. So let's get into our questions for today. Our first one comes from Tom Zip. And Tom says, I'm building a Berlin chair based on a plan in how to construct right belt furniture. Baltic birch plywood is recommended. I already have the pieces cut and I need to make a mortise and tenon to join one of the legs to the horizontal armrest. How would you make a mortise and tenon by hand in plywood? Would the process differ from using solid lumber? So uh, I apologize to Tom. I had to go actually and look up a the design of a Berlin chair because it's not something that I'm familiar with. It's not really a, a style that um, I'm into and that I, I do much research on. So I wasn't really too familiar with the style. But I did go and I, I Googled it and looked it up and found some pictures of the chair that Tom is building. Um, and essentially it's a, a plywood chair um, and a, I guess it would be sort of a mid-century modern, you know, type of style. Um, and it is all built from plywood. There's one arm and one le- and the, the, the right side leg, I guess, comes up into the bottom of the arm, sort of like what you would have in a Morris chair, um, where the leg comes up into the arm on the side of the Morris chair. In a Morris chair, the tenon typically is a through tenon. Um, and is visible from the top side. When I looked at the pictures of this, it did not look like a through tenon. That was one of Tom's questions, whether or not I would use a through tenon or not. Um, and looking at the pictures, the plywood gives everything very clean lines. And I think making a, a through tenon like you would do for a Mars chair just wouldn't look right. It would kind of break up the clean, flat surface of the arm. So it's probably not what I would do. Um, so if if you're using three-quarter inch plywood, now, typically, you know, if I if I'm going to do work in plywood, um, I will try to minimize 
the damage to my edge tools. I, for the most part, will treat it just like I do solid wood. So to answer that part of the question, uh, no, the process really wouldn't differ that much from using solid wood. In the case of the tenon that you're going to cut for this particular chair, it's probably going to be fairly short. I mean, you're using three quarter inch plywood. So the tenon's really probably not going to be much longer than about a half an inch. You could score the sides of that out with a knife and chop it with your chisels, just like you would with, uh, with solid wood. And in fact, that's probably the way to go because if you try to pre-drill or bore out any of that waste, if you're using anything other than a Forstner bit, um, anything with a lead screw, that lead screw is going to poke through the other side because you just don't have a whole lot of material to work with there. So I would say just score the edges with a knife and go ahead and, and uh, you know, pare it out and chop it out with one of your chisels. You may have to sharpen the chisel a couple times because the glue will probably uh, dull it faster than using solid wood. But in terms of the process, it really shouldn't be any different than, uh, than working in solid wood. Just mark out your, the extent of your mortise, um, you know, score everything with a knife to make a nice clean cut. Cause these, you know, those pieces really do have quite, uh, quite straight, clean, crisp lines. So you want to make sure you maintain that on the, on the bottom side of the arm. So definitely mark everything out with a knife to avoid any chipping or splintering of that, uh, that the veneer on that plywood. And, uh, yeah, just chop it out just like you would in solid wood. No different, I don't think. So our question, our second question comes from Scott Adams. And Scott says, the question that I have involves molding planes and Stanley 45s. Are the hollow and round blades on the 45 effective and easy to use? It seems like it would be really hard to get a good working depth. And also, like you'd have to adjust it constantly. I have a set now, but haven't had a chance to mess with them. To be honest, when I finally got the plane and blades together and formulated this hypothesis about their ease of use, I started to wonder if I should try to make a small set of wooden bodies for the 45 blades. What do you think? Have you ever used a 45 for moldings? Uh, so to answer your second question first, no, I've never used a 45 for moldings. I have, well, I shouldn't say that. That's not entirely true. I have never used the 45 for hollow and rounds. I have not used that, that additional add on. And as rare as those extra soles for the hollows and rounds are, and the hollow and round blades themselves, I'm guessing there's not a whole lot of people even back when the plane was new that used it for our, uh, moldings either. I have used combination planes like that for beating. And indeed, they can be quite finicky to set up. Once they're set up, um, they work. You know, a, a side bead or, or a dedicated molding plane is certainly going to work better. One of the disadvantages of the um, using moldings, doing moldings with those combination planes, is that the combination plane has no sole. It basically just has skates. So you have no support of the wood in front of or behind the blade like you would in a wooden bodied plane where you've got full support of the wood uh, in front of and behind the blade. And you don't get that burnishing effect that you get from the wood either. So um, while I have not used the hollows and the hollow and round blades for the combination planes, I have used the beating planes. And like I said there, they will work. If you get them sharp, get everything set up just right. Um, they'll work, but I wouldn't touch any of those settings once you have them set up, especially if you've got to do several pieces because getting that setting back to, uh, re, you know, getting it back to where it was, if you move it is going to be uh, a Royal pain in the neck. So, um, in terms of making wooden bodies for the blades, you could certainly try it. Um, the blades are kind of short, so I don't know how well that would work. Um, you know, but it's certainly, I mean, you've got the blades, there's certainly no harm in uh, getting some scrap wood and giving it a try. Um, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I have done some, some, uh, simple moldings, some beads with combination planes and they have been, they are kind of a pain in the butt and they are kind of finicky to use. So it's not something that, um, I typically do. If I've got to make moldings, I, you know, one, those are one set of planes that I kept when I sold off a lot of my wooden planes was my hollows and rounds. They're not going anywhere. So, um, there's, there's no better way to make moldings than with wooden hollows and rounds. So 
Um, but certainly give it a try and see what you think. There are people who swear by the combination planes and love the things. But, um, you know, I honestly think that a lot of the people that do are just folks that like to tinker with stuff like that and, and have the patience to tinker with it until it works. And me, I'm just not really one of them. I, I want to set the tool up and I want to use it and I want to make stuff with it. I don't want to spend a lot of time tinkering with the tool. So, but give it a try and see what you think. So our third question comes from Andy Margeson. And he says, I enjoyed your discussion of hand tool efficiency. You're certainly right about choosing the right wood species, but there are countervailing considerations. If you like arts and crafts furniture like I do, then it's hard to turn away from white oak. Also, I just finished making an outdoor side table and white oak was the clear choice. Green lumber isn't an option for me. Do you have any suggestions about working dry white oak with hand tools? So, uh, yeah, you know, arts and crafts furniture, a lot of people really love it. Um, and a lot of people really love hand tools. So they're sort of, uh, those two things are sort of at odds with each other because of course, arts and crafts furniture used almost exclusively used white oak. Um, and you know, that's fine. Keep in mind that most of that furniture was designed and made with machines. Most, all those mortise and tenons that most of those, uh, pieces were made out of were made with machines. So wasn't so much of an issue for them at the time. But of course, these days, a lot of us are really into hand tools and we still like the arts and crafts furniture. So we want to figure out ways to make that type of stuff with our hand tools. So there's certainly no reason you can't work dry white oak with hand tools. Um, it's just harder. It, it's more difficult. And, and, you know, I deal with this on a daily basis. There are things that I make out of oak and hard maple and things like that. And um, I have hand tools, you know, I don't have a power planer. I don't have a table saw. So I'm doing all that stuff with my hand tools. I avoid it when I can, but when I've got to use the hard maple, when I've got to use the, the red or white oak, I use it. Um, secrets. I don't think there's really any secrets. Um, you know, you just have to be prepared for the process to take longer because it's going to take longer. Uh, you have to make sure your tools are sharp. You're probably going to have to stop and sharpen them more often. You're going to have to take lighter cuts. You're going to have to make lighter chops. Um, you know, everything that you do in walnut or mahogany or pine, you know, taking big, heavy, heavy chips when you're chopping joinery and, and uh, taking big, heavy cuts with your planes, you're just simply not going to be able to do that working with these really hard woods when they're dry. So you just have to be prepared for, you know, a slower process and, and the long haul. Some things that I will do is to try and remove excess waste with other methods when I can. Um, so while I typically like to chop my mortises, if I've got to do a lot of mortises in a really hard wood, I might choose to drill out some of that waste first, either, you know, you could use a cordless drill or drill press. If you have one, I do have a benchtop drill press that I'll use from time to time, uh, mostly for working metal. But if I've got a situation where I've got to get a, a dead plumb hole, I'll use the drill press or, you know, in a situation where I need to remove a lot of waste and do a lot of mortises in really, really hard woods, um, I might use the drill press to remove some of that waste and then clean it up with a chisel instead of chop, trying to chop the whole thing. Um, with a chisel, you know, it's just something that might speed the process up a little bit. You kind of have to look at your toolkit and what you have and, you know, ways to create those efficiencies. Um, you can use a brace and bit to remove a lot of that wood. You know, if you've got, um, if you've got a good set of bits that can handle those hard woods, certainly there's no reason you can't use a brace and bit and remove a lot of that wood and, and clean it up with your chisels instead of trying to chop the whole thing. And maybe that might save you some time. Um, you know, chopping dovetails in, in woods that are that hard, you know, again, you're, I would remove the waste with a, a coping saw as much as I could, uh, and as close to the line as I could so that I wouldn't have to do as much chopping, um, arts and crafts furniture, you know, a lot of mortise and tenons. So I would say, especially because they use a lot of through mortise and tenons. So no reason not to bore from either side, you know, mark out your mortises with, um, with good crisp knife lines and use your brace and bit, use your drill press, use, you know, whatever your method you've got to bore from either side of that mortise and remove as much of that waste as you can with the drill before you move on to chopping. And that should speed you up a little bit and, and save the edges on your tools a little bit. So maybe you don't have to sharpen quite as often, 
But ultimately, you're really just going to have to uh, be a little bit more patient working with those woods and realize that you're not going to be able to take thick cuts. You know, if you've got a thickness white oak with your hand planes, you know, it's just going to take time. Work across the grain as much as you can because it's going to be easier to plane across the grain with a cambered iron than it is going to be to plane along the grain, um, especially on the growth ring face. Um, you know, in the in the ray plane, those woods work really nice, actually. They, they plane really nice. They work really nice in the ray plane. But when you get to the growth ring plane uh, or the tangential plane, th they're tough and, and the wood wants to hold on and it just does not like to get cut. So um, light cuts and, and sharpen often and uh, just be ready to uh, for it to take a little bit longer than it will in softer woods. So our last question comes from Ula Boven. Willa says, I'm brand new to woodworking, and I was wondering if you could think back to your early days of woodwork and give tips on projects, techniques, and ways to not break the budget. Thank you. So, Ula, um, you know, that, that's one of the, the seminars that I do most often is my Intro to Hand Tools seminar um, that I do with the, the school that I teach at. Um, is really all about not breaking the budget when you're when you're first getting started, and in fact, I did a podcast. One of my first podcasts was on getting started on a budget. If you go back and listen to episode two of the podcast, um, it was titled "Hand Tools on a Budget," and I discuss everything um, in great detail about how to get started on a budget and how, where where to spend your money, where not to spend your money, etc. Um, the Cliff Notes or short version of it is to uh, not start by thinking about tools, but instead start by thinking about projects and what you want to build. Pick something that you want to build and then figure out how to build it um, and create what I call a task list. Because every project has a task list. Task list. You need to you know, break down your lumber. You need to plane your lumber. You need to cut your joinery. You need to assemble, etc., etc., etc. It's up to you how detailed you want to make that task list, but go through, take that project, break it down into steps that you need to take in order to build that project, and then figure out what tools you need to do each one of those steps and buy the tools that you need for the step that you're at. Step one, you need to do X, Y, and Z, buy the tools that you need to do X, Y, and Z, get good with those, learn how to sharpen them, do those tasks. When you get to your next step, look at the tools that you need to do that step. And if there are tools that you need that you don't have, then buy the tools that you have and just those tools to do that next step. And that really what that allows you to do is to learn the skills because you're building as you're going. And it allows you to understand what tools you need and what tools you don't rather than just going out and buying tools off some list that is designed to allow you to build everything you ever need to build. Um, and it's also going to space out your tool purchases over time so that you're not spending tons of money all at once. And finally, it leaves room in the budget for wood, which is important because you don't want to use cheap lumber, you know, stuff reclaimed from pallets and, and junk like that. Um, there's a reason that that lumber was used for pallets because it wasn't good for anything else. So, uh, you know, wood is expensive. Good wood is even more expensive. Um, and good hand tool wood is not going to be cheap. So, um, you know, save some room in your budget for the lumber, pick a project, make your task list and go ahead and purchase your tools only as they're needed to complete the task list that you're going through as you're building that first project. By the end of that first project, you'll have a good basic toolkit. And when you start your second project, you'll need fewer tools as you go through that second project. And that way you're just buying the tools as you need them. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. Leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. Or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic was suggested by patron Bill Elliott. And I thought it would be a really good follow-up to the last show because Bill wants to know about strategies on the use of wood screws. Now, since I talked about nails in the last episode, I thought talking about screws today would be a good continuation from the last show. 
You know, a, a lot of folks turn their noses up at fasteners like nails and screws, and they consider using them inferior construction to just wood-to-wood joinery. But the fact of the matter is, when nails and screws are used in the right situations, these fasteners can be just as good, and in some situations, even a better choice than joinery. Consider situations like applying case backs or, uh, or drawer bottoms, chest or drawer bottoms. You know, fasteners allow these parts to be installed quickly and then also to be removed and replaced easily if they get damaged or worn. Properly installed fasteners will also allow wood to move in cross-grain situations as opposed to joinery that's glued and, and thereby preventing movement. And I talked about that last time with the nails, building something like a six-board chest where you're faced with a cross-grain situation where the front and back boards the grain runs horizontally and the sideboards, the grain runs vertically. It's the fasteners that allow, have allowed these pieces to survive for hundreds of years. If you were to glue those joints, they would have failed a long, long time ago. So there's really, there's also the need, you know, if you want to install um, hardware like locks or, or hinges, you simply can't do that without fasteners. The fact is that, that fasteners are historically accurate, and they're completely appropriate when the situation calls for them. So I would say don't let the fancy lads uh, make you feel guilty for using nails and screws in your work. There are lots of good reasons to use them. Now, since I talked about nails last time, let's talk today about some strategies for using screws. So when you go to the hardware store to, to buy screws for a project or, or, you know, your woodworking catalog, you're likely to find several different types of, of screws. Um, you've got sheet metal screws, um, wood screws, drywall screws, deck screws. So, so what are you going to pick? Well, I tend to look for actual wood screws and what are the differences? Well, sheet metal screws, while they may resemble wood screws, you can almost always identify them because they're usually going to have some type of round head. Most sheet metal screws um, don't have flat heads or for countersinking. On occasion they do, but usually they have some type of you know roundish head or pan head. But more important than that, sheet metal screws are threaded the entire length of the shank. Wood screws, on the other hand, are not threaded the entire length of the shank. There is a section of the shank of the screw below the head, directly below the screw head, that is unthreaded. And that's important for wood screws because you're, you're going to need that unthreaded section to make sure that your parts go together correctly. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, machine screws don't have that unthreaded section. They're threaded for the, for the entire length. So that's one good way to tell the difference between like a sheet metal screw or machine screw and a, uh, and a wood screw. Wood screws are going to have a section of the shank that is unthreaded. Now, drywall screws are, for the most part, intended for what their namesake says. They're intended for hanging drywall. The problem that I find with drywall screws is that the, the shanks are typically much thinner than a proper wood screw. The threads are typically much coarser than a proper wood screw because they're just designed to go into soft framing lumber and be installed very quickly. Um, and they're brittle. The screws are very brittle. So if, you, if you've ever tried installing drywall screws into hardwood, um, you know, to use them for woodworking, nine times out of ten, if you're not careful, the, the head of that drywall screw just snaps right off and, and shears right off. The, the screw just twists. Because the, the screws are brittle, and the shanks are just too thin for, you know, normal woodworking. They work fine for hanging drywall. So, you know, that's what I use them for. But I don't use them in woodworking. Um, and then there are deck screws. Now, these technically are wood screws. Most deck screws um, do have an unthreaded section of shank, just like a typical wood screw. They are hardened steel, which is good because they don't typically shear off and they're meant to take some shear load. Um... But the problem that I find with deck screws is that they're just plain ugly. Uh, most of them, the countersink head has sort of like rounded edges on it so it doesn't sit nicely in a, in a countersink. Um, 
they're usually coated with some type of anti-corrosive coating because you're usually putting deck screws into pressure-treated lumber for, well, building a deck. Um, and they usually have Torx heads on them. Sometimes you might find them with Phillips heads, but these days it seems like most of them are coming in Torx drive. So, I mean, I don't use deck screws in my woodworking because they're just plain ugly. Um, so when I go looking for screws to use for my woodworking projects, I'm looking for a true wood screw. It's identified as a wood screw. It's got that section of unthreaded shank. It's raw steel or at most zinc plated so that I can strip the zinc plating and, and turn it into a raw steel screw. Um, that is a good wood screw. Now, there are two different styles of wood screws that you may find. Uh, if all you ever do is buy your hardware brand new, then you're probably only going to find what I'm referring to as the new style of wood screw. The new style of wood screw is, looks similar to a deck screw where the shank, that, that unthreaded portion of the screw that I mentioned earlier, is the same diameter as the, the lower shank below the threads. So the threads of the screw themselves are actually bigger than the unthreaded portion of shank. And that's what the new style screw looks like. And that's because of the way the screws are made. The threads are cut. The screw itself is cut from a larger diameter piece of steel. And the threads are left. And that section, that unthreaded section above the, the threads is just cut down to the diameter the same as the diameter of the shank where the threads are. So you have that thin section of unthreaded shank that is the same diameter below the screw. Now, if you're into collecting old screws and old hardware, what you might find is that in older wood screws, that was not the case. That section of unthreaded shank above the threads was actually the same diameter as the threads. So it was bigger. It was a bigger diameter than the, sh than the, um, the shank section where the threads are. And again, that just comes down to how the screws used to be manufactured. They were manufactured in a different method that did not cut away all of that unthreaded section. It left the unthreaded section and just cut the threads down below so that the unthreaded section was a larger diameter. Um, and that's just the way that the screws were made. So as mentioned previously, you're also going to find several different head types. Um, in, in a true wood screw, the two that you're most likely going to find are a round or domed head and then a flat or countersink head. And you're going to choose which one you use based on the situation. If you need a, a screw to sit flush with the surface, obviously you want the flat or countersink head. And if you need something with a little extra holding power and something that's going to sit on the surface and look nicer sitting on the surface, then you want to go with a round or domed head. And then, of course, there are different drive types. Uh, my favorite, the slotted, is the oldest of the different drive types. Uh, the Phillips drive type, which... Uh, is the bane of most woodworkers because um, the screwdriver bit keep constantly cams out of those screws. And, and believe it or not, that's actually a, uh, a feature of those screws and not a flaw. Phillips head pattern was developed in the early 1900s, 1920s or so. Um, and its first use was going to be in the automotive industry. And they wanted the screwdriver bit to cam out of that screw when the screw reached proper tightness. So that's how the Phillips bit was designed so that the bit would purposely cam out when the screw was tight enough. Of course, we know that in woodworking, the screw tends to get tight before it bottoms out. So then our bits cam out and the, the threads and the, uh, the head strips and it just causes nothing but problems. So uh, Phillips head's not one of my favorites. And, and in my opinion, it's kind of ugly anyway. So I tend not to use them. If I get hardware or something like that that comes with Phillips head screws, uh, I'll tend to replace those screws with slotted. Um, the third type of commonly found drive is the Robertson or square drive. Again, these are very positive drive screws, uh, much more common outside the U.S. than they are um, in the U.S., but there are folks that use them here and, and swear by them. Um, I'm not one of them. Again, uh, to me, they just, they they look very modern and it's not something that I I strive for in the pieces that I build. Um, so while I don't use them, um, I can certainly see why some folks would. Um, and then of course the Torx or the star drive. Um, and again, you most commonly find those in deck screws, which as I mentioned earlier, I don't use in my woodwork. Um, cause to me, they're just plain ugly. 
Um, I'm I'm a big fan of the slotted screws, and for the most part, in in my furniture and woodworking, that's all I use are, are slotted screws. Uh, and then you're going to have to decide on your material. So typically, again, you're going to have brass and steel, and those are going to be your choices. The brass is going to be more decorative, usually supplied with brass hardware. Uh, that's most of the time where you're going to use brass screws is attaching brass hardware. Um, steel screws are typically used for all other instances. So once you've decided on the type of screw, now you've got to decide on a size. And when I, the, what I'm talking about here is the actual diameter of the screw. So you're going to run into two primary situations working with screws. Um, the first being mounting hardware and the second being creating wood to wood connections, like say attaching case backs or cabinet backs. So for, for mounting hardware, the most common sizes are going to be number four to number six. Um, and this is for things like hinges and poles and locks. Now the screws are often supplied with the hardware. So often there's no need to worry about choosing the screws anyway, because when you buy the hardware, the hardware is going to come with the screws. But in the rare case that the hardware does not come with screws, um, or in cases like mine where the hardware might come with Phillips head screws and I want to replace those with slotted screws. Um, I look for a couple things when I, when I'm looking for the right diameter of screw to use. Um, first and most obvious, the fastener needs to fit the hole in the hardware. Um, if I'm putting in a hinge or a lock plate or something like that, the holes already drilled in that hinge or lock plate. So I need to make sure the screws that I'm using are going to go through that hole. I don't obviously don't want anything too big. I also don't want anything too small because the head of the screw might go right through the hole and not seat in the countersink. So you want something that's properly sized for the hole that's drilled in the, in that hardware. Second is the countersink size. Now you might find a screw that the head does not slide through the hole, a nice small screw. Maybe the head doesn't slide through the hole, but maybe the problem is that the head is just a little bit too small. Uh, maybe you grabbed a number six or a number four screw and the, the hardware should really be nut size five. The head probably won't pull through, but when you put that screw in, what you're going to find is that the screw doesn't sit flush with the top of the hardware. It sits low in the countersink. And while it doesn't impede the, the function of the hinge, it doesn't look right because the screw head just looks too small for the countersink. On the other end of the spectrum, maybe you bought size six screws and it calls for a size five. And uh, the, the shank will go through the hole that's drilled in the, in the hinge, but the head is a little bit too big for the countersink. So now the top of the head of the screw sits proud of the hardware, which not only looks bad, can actually impede the function if it's something like a hinge. Um, if that screw head is sticking up above the surface of the hinge leaf, it can actually impede the closing of the hinge. So I look for something where the head of the screw fills the countersink. And when the screw is tightened, the top of that screw head sits flush with the top of the countersink. It may seem obvious, but um, it's sometimes not always easy to find the right screws to, to fit that. Now for wood to wood connections, your most common sizes are going to be probably be like number eight to number 12. Um, and there's really no criteria for choosing what you're going to use in these situations. Often it's just whatever I have on hand, but I do have, um, some situations where, you know, I, I want to be careful what I'm using. The first of those is, is a high stress situation. In those cases, I want to use the largest diameter possible. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I built my traveling tool chest, my small tool chest, um, I put wood handles on the outside of it. Well, those handles are used to drag that chest across the floor. They're used to help lift the chest when I'm putting it in the back of my truck. Um, so those screws that are attaching those handles see a lot of stress. So in that case, I wanted to use the biggest, beefiest screws I could find. Um, and in fact, in that case, I think I ended up using size 14s, um, even though I mentioned that size 12s are probably more commonly used. Um, I think I used 14s in that case because I just wanted the biggest, heaviest, strongest screw I could find because I knew that those handles and those screws were going to be under a lot of stress. The other situation, while it might be low stress, um, is 
when you're working in very thin materials. You want to make sure that when you drill your pilot hole for your screws, you're leaving enough material on either, you know, around that pilot hole that when you torque that screw in and drive the screw in, the threads aren't just going to split everything out. Um, so you don't want to use a screw that's too big in those cases uh, because the material is just too thin to handle it. So those are the, the two cases where I'm going to be a little bit more picky about the, the diameter of the screws that I use. But in a typical low-stress situation like attaching cabinet backs or drawer bottoms or something like that, it really isn't all that important what size screw you use. So I just go for whatever is most visually appealing. You know, if I open a drawer and there's a giant number 12 screw in the bottom, it works. It may not be the most visually appealing, though. So I'm going to look for something that's sized a little bit more appropriately that's going to look good to my eye. Um, as long as it's a low-stress situation, though, it really doesn't matter. Just use what looks good to you. So then we need to talk about length once we've got the diameter. Now, you can use a rule similar to the rule of thumb that I mentioned in the last episode about nails, um, where you convert the thickness of the top board to eighths of an inch and use the D size for the nail. That, that gives you your D size. So I think the example I used in the last episode was three quarters of an inch. So if you convert three quarters to eighths of an inch, it's six eighths. So the top number is six, so you would use a 6D nail, which is two inches long. Now you can use that same rule for screws. So in the case of a three-quarter inch board, if you're attaching a cabinet back and your cabinet back is three-quarters of an inch um, thick, you convert that to eighths, it gives you 6D or two inches, so you would use a two-inch screw. Now that might seem a little bit long, but in a stressful situation, that's going to provide a good amount of hold. The thing with screws is you can afford to go a little bit shorter due to the extra holding ability of the threads. So the general rule of thumb is something between two and three times the top board thickness. So for that three quarter inch board, that would mean something between an inch and a half and two and a quarter inches. So as you can see, using the, the same rule that you use for nails, Two inches falls between that, that two to three times the top board thickness for the length of the screw. Um, as long as you're in that range somewhere, you should be just fine. Now, screws are going to require a pilot hole, similar to the cut nails that we talked about last time. But what size pilot hole are you going to drill? So first off, it's going to depend on the screw design. Um, are you using an old screw where the shank... The, the unthreaded portion of the, the screw's shank is actually bigger than the shank of the screw at the threaded portion, or are you using a newer screw where that unthreaded portion of the shank is the same diameter as the threaded portion. It also depends on the screw's style. Are you using a true wood screw where it has that unthreaded portion of the shank, or are you using a sheet metal or a drywall screw where the entire shank is threaded. So once, once you know what screws you're using, you can kind of go about figuring out what type of pilot hole. Now, if you're using an old style wood screw where the unthreaded portion of the shank is bigger than the rest of the shank, you're gonna need to drill two different size pilot holes. And the reason for that is the top board needs a clearance hole you don't want threads biting in the top board. The idea or the purpose of the wood screw is to pull those two boards tightly together. However, if there's a gap between the two boards and you have threads of the screw biting in both of those boards, that screw is not going to pull the bottom board tight to the top board. Instead, it's just gonna thread its way in until it bottoms out and it's gonna leave the gap there. Um, so that top hole needs to be a clearance hole. Now, in the case of an older style wood screw, because the top hole is a um, the same diameter as the threads of the screw, you need to drill the hole, the clearance hole in that top board, the same diameter as the threads or the same diameter as the unthreaded portion or a hair larger. So that way the, uh, the screw doesn't bind up and, and you don't get a, uh, a friction bind in that hole. So you want that, that top hole to have clearance so that nothing bites. Now the bottom hole, is the diameter of that is going to be the diameter of the shank of the 
threaded portion of the screw. So if you take a drill bit and lay it over top of the threaded portion of the screw, you should see the threads of the screw poking out from behind the drill bit, but you shouldn't see any shank. Or if you do see shank, it should just be a hair of shank. You don't want to uh, you don't want to see a lot of shank sticking out behind that drill bit. You want to try and size your drill bit and your pilot hole to the size of the shank of the screw um, where the threads are. That way, when you drive that screw, the threads are going to cut their way into the um, into the wood inside that pilot hole, but the shank is not going to have a tendency to push and wedge the rest of that wood apart, which is what's going to cause your splits. Now, if you're using a newer style wood screw, such as a deck screw or, you know, where the, um, where the upper portion, the unthreaded portion is the same diameter as the, um, the shank of the threaded portion, then you can just drill a single size pilot hole. You don't need that stepped pilot hole, um, because the, the diameter of the unthreaded portion of the shank is a smaller diameter than the threads themselves. So in that case, you, do just what I mentioned before, take your drill bit, lay it over the threads, make sure that the threads poke out behind a drill bit, but the shank doesn't, or if it does, just a, a small hair of shank pokes out from behind that drill bit, and that's the, the proper size drill bit to use. Um, there are guides online where you can find that will give you actual drill bit sizes, depending on the type of screw. I don't bother with any of them. When I'm going to drill pilot holes, I just do what I just said and lay the drill bit over top of the screw and select the, the right size drill bit that way. The other possibility is to use a tapered drill bit. And you can buy these in most woodworking supply stores where the drill bit itself actually tapers like the a traditional wood screw does. Now, these aren't going to be too helpful for modern wood screws because modern wood screws, again, don't taper. But traditional older style wood screws do have some taper to them. So those tapered bits are going to be really great for installing old screws if those are the, the types of screws that you're using. The other thing to keep in mind about your pilot hole is that you want to allow for wood movement depending upon the situation. Uh, if you're installing you know, a solid tongue and groove cabinet backs, for example, you want those boards to be able to expand and contract seasonally. And if you screw everything down tight in a tight pilot hole, you're not going to give the wood a chance to do that. So the, the, there are a couple of strategies. You can put a single screw in the center of the board, and that way it will allow things to expand and contract. Um, but if you're using something like shiplap where the board could potentially cup, you may not want to do that. So in those cases, you may need to put two screws in. Well, if you're going to have to put two screws in, there are a couple ways you can allow for that wood movement. The first is to use an oversized clearance hole in the top board. So rather than using a clearance hole that's the, the size or just over the size of the unthreaded portion of the shank, you can use a slightly larger clearance hole, something that's bigger, you know, a, a good amount bigger than the unthreaded portion of the shank of the screw, just not so big that the head of the screw pulls through. Um, and then you can add a washer. On, onto that screw, like if you're using a round-headed screw, and that oversized pilot hole and washer will give the room, give the wood some room to move. The other thing you could do is to just elongate your pilot hole. So use a pilot hole that's the size of the unthreaded portion of the shank, but maybe drill two pilot holes right next to each other and clear that little bit of waste out in between. So you have sort of an oval-shaped pilot hole, and that will give the wood some room to expand and contract around the shank of that screw so that it doesn't bind up and things don't split on you down the road. Now, when it comes time to drive the screws after you've got your, your pilot holes drilled, um, there's a couple things that can make your life easier. First is to lubricate the screw. And this is really important um, in hardwoods. If you're driving screws into oak or hickory like I was this weekend building my, uh, my staircase, it is really beneficial to lubricate the screws to help drive them through. Um, some type of wax is best. Um, I've used like paste wax, finishing wax, like you might use Johnson's paste wax or Minwax finishing wax. Um, that works fine. Beeswax works fine. Paraffin wax from a candle works fine. 
Um, the softer waxes tend to work a little bit better, like the finishing wax, because they stick to the screw better. Hard waxes like beeswax or paraffin, you kind of have to scrape the screw across them and then they flake off and they don't always stick to the screw real well. So the soft waxes actually work a little bit better. Another thing that folks often will use is soap. Um, you know, just dragging the, uh, dragging the, the screw across a bar of soap or using a little liquid dish detergent to, uh, to coat the screw to make it, to lubricate it and let it drive in easier. And while soap works, there is a bit of a, um, so soap can be problematic down the line. So soap is, is alkaline, um, which means it can corrode the screws down the road. If you're using coated screws like deck screws or something like that, it's probably not a problem. But if you're using zinc plated or, um, raw steel screws, soap can corrode and rust those screws years down the line. And if they rust out inside the hole, um, they could potentially lose their holding power. So, um, I tend to avoid soap when I can, um, with brass screws, in addition to lubricating, it's actually best to pre thread the holes. And again, this is especially true in hardwoods. Um, and that's to prevent stripping or shearing of the head of the brass screw. Brass is really soft. And it doesn't like to cut its own threads, especially in harder woods. So a great strategy for installing brass screws is to drill your pilot holes and then take a steel screw of the same size and drive that into the hole first. The steel screw will cut the threads. Then you can take the steel screw out and replace it with a brass screw and the brass screw will go in much easier and still hold just as well. And there's much less chance of stripping out the head of the brass screw or twisting it completely off by pre-cutting the threads with, uh, with a steel, steel screw first. Um, and you're going to want to use care with impact drivers or, or drills. Um, you know, I know lots of folks like to drive their screws with impact drivers and they're, they're great tools. I have, um, I have one that I use building up, uh, up at the cabin. Um, you know, I use it all the time, but, uh, it's very easy with an impact driver to over torque and, and twist the heads off of softer screws and, and especially more brittle screws like drywall screws, um, especially in hardwoods. You know, I, I did it this weekend putting together, uh, my hickory treads and risers for uh, my staircase. And I bottomed that screw out and I got a little bit too aggressive with the impact driver and it snapped the head of that drywall screw right off. So, um, you want to be careful using drills and impact drivers to drive screws, especially these days, um, steel screws are much softer than they used to be. And they, they just tend to, the heads tend to twist right off of them a lot easier than they used to. Um, it's actually better to stop short of driving that screw completely with the impact driver and just finish driving it by hand. Um, you're, you're much safer that way and much less likely to twist the head off the screw, uh, by doing so you can really feel when the screw bottoms out, um, and everything pulls up tight and then you can stop. Um, and I mean, really it's best to just drive them completely by hand and skip the, uh, impact driver altogether. You know, they're great if you're driving deck screws, but when you're driving furniture screws and especially brass screws, um, you really don't want to take the chance. Most of the time you're not going to be using screws that are very long anyway. And with a clearance hole, you're really only driving a screw, maybe three quarters of an inch to an inch deep. Um, so driving by hand doesn't take long and it just provides that little extra level of safety that you're not going to twist the head off the screw. Um, and then in terms of screwdrivers, really the, the gunsmith style parallel sided screwdrivers are going to be your best bet, especially if you use slotted screws. Um, they tend to fit the screw better. They don't cam out and strip the heads as easily as your hardware store screwdrivers. Um, and they just do a much better job. Hardware screwdrivers will certainly work, but you know, the bits that gunsmiths use are cheap. They're a couple dollars a piece. You only need two or three different sizes. If you're, if you're primarily using slotted screws, two or three different sizes of bits are probably going to get you, um, probably going to be sufficient to do all the different size screws that you're going to need to do in your furniture and woodworking. Um, and the bits are, are cheap. You put them in a replaceable, in, you know, in a bit holder, one of those screwdrivers with replaceable tips and, uh, and they're going to, 
help to ensure that you you spend less time stripping heads and uh, give you a more positive grip on that screw. So uh, I hope after all of this that you will uh, not turn your nose up at screws and uh, give them their fair chance and use them where they are appropriate. Um, obviously, you know, we're not going to use them to attach our table aprons to legs. Um, not really appropriate there, but in the right situation, screws can be quick. They can be convenient and they can certainly be plenty strong enough and historically accurate. Um, so don't turn your nose up at screws. Feel free to, to use them in your projects and be proud of the fact that you use them. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content, just like Bill did today, suggesting uh, the main topic for today's show. My preferred method is for you to, to record a voice memo on your phone and, and just email it to me at bob at brfinewoodworking.com. This way you don't just have to listen to me the whole time. Um, but you can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt019. In the show notes, you'll find links that I referred to in today's show and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal and you'll find links to do those things in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening and until next time, stay sharp, everybody. <laughs>